there is a prosperity gospel out there that teaches that when you come to Christ, all of your problems will go away and that you won't have any more trouble. Your health problems will go away. Your relationship problems will go away. Your financial troubles will go away. And yet what the Scriptures paint is a different picture. And what we experience as Christians is much different from that kind of a false gospel. Because while the gospel is full and rich with blessings and benefits, it is not a life of ease. It's not a life for the weak in heart. It's a life of trouble and difficulty. However, uh, the way that Jesus describes it is that it will be a life that is, in comparison to the life that we once had, is going to be easy. Right? He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But what we need to remember there is that Jesus still expects us to take on the yoke of following him. And that is a burden. It's, it's a weight that we bear as we follow him. And so we should not expect to be free from problems. Now, the joys that we have as Christians far outweigh um, any kinds of pleasures that we would have prior to coming to Christ. But, but what we need to recognize is that in the context of our individual Christian lives and in the context of a church, it is completely appropriate to think about the troubles that we face. And I think we need to think about them in a biblical way, obviously, and, and, um, and learn how to take these kinds of troubles to God in prayer while relying on Him. That's what Psalm 35 is about. So let me invite you to turn there if you haven't already. This 35th Psalm is written by David, according to the inscription there. And it's a lament psalm. This is one of the most popular, actually it is the most popular, most common, I should say, most common type of psalm that you will see in the psalms. Sixty-five of the psalms are, are lament psalms. That is, that they begin here, David does as well, he begins with expressing his sorrow, his frustration, his mourning over what is going on, and then he moves to uh, trusting in God and praying for help. And, uh, and so we can learn much from here. Here David prays specifically for judgment to come on the wicked. But it's not something that he himself wants to carry out. He expects God to do it. And so he prays to God that God would carry out the, ju- the judgment upon his enemies. So let me begin reading in verse 1. And I'll read the entire chapter. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of buckler and shield and rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. Let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them on. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my soul. Let destruction come upon him unawares, and let the net which he hid catch himself. Into that very destruction let him fall. And my soul will rejoice in the Lord. It it will exult in his salvation. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you? Who delivers the afflicted from 
him who is too strong for him and the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was my sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. The smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They slandered me without ceasing. Like godless jesters at a feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their ravages. My only life from the lions. I will give you thanks in the great congregation. I will praise you among a mighty throng. Do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me, nor let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously, for they do not seek peace. But they devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. They opened their mouth wide against me. They said, Aha! Aha! Our eyes have seen it. You have seen it, O Lord. Do not keep silent. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my right and to my cause, my God and my Lord. Judge me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and do not let them rejoice over me. Do not let them say in their heart, Aha! Our desire. Do not let them say, We have swallowed him up. Let those be ashamed and humiliated altogether who rejoice at my distress. Let those be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves over me. Let them shout for joy and rejoice who favor my vindication. And let them continually say, The Lord be magnified, who delights in the prosperity of his servant. And my tongue shall declare your righteousness and your praise all day long. Let's pray. Father, help us to think about how to respond rightly to persecution to our enemies thank you father that you are near and that you care and that you desire for us to come and ask you for help and lord we we fall on you for mercy and we depend upon you for grace and we pray that you would help us this evening to understand your word and to apply it to our lives because we don't want to be hearers only in jesus name amen Tonight we're going to see that when the innocent righteous are hated by the world, they should pray to God for protection and deliverance. When the innocent righteous are hated, they should pray to God for protection and deliverance. And if you think about it, it's really not a very profound thought. right? When, when we are hated, we pray to God for help. That's as simple as it gets. And yet, this is what David does in a time of deep distress. He calls out to God in prayer. Now, the way that this psalm is structured is in three main parts. And basically, the way that he does it is this is a poem. So he's got several lines throughout his poetry. And the way that he sets up this poem is that he he goes nine lines talking about his trouble and then three lines of praise. That's going to be the first section, verses 1 to 10. And then nine more lines talking about his trouble and then one line of praise. That is a promise to praise. We'll see that. And that's verses 11 through 18. And then the final section, verses 19 to 28, is nine more lines and then three lines of praise. So nine lines of trouble, three lines of praise, nine lines of trouble, one line of praise, nine lines of trouble, three lines of praise. 
And that's how the, the, the psalm sets up for us. So that will be our three main points. First, a prayer for God's defense in verses 1 through 10. Here's this first section that includes both an explanation to God of what's going on along with this conclusion of a promise to praise God when He does deliver. So first, the appeal for God to fight in verses 1 through 8. Here, David pictures God. You see that in verse 1 as a warrior clothed in armor, ready and waiting for battle for those who love Him. Here's his, his prayer, his initial uh, expectation or desire, his request to God. It is, God, contend against my contenders. Right? The people who are contending against me, you contend against them. You are much more powerful than they. And, and, and fight those who are fighting against me. Then in verse 2, he calls on God to put on his armor so that he can fight. It's as if God is a warrior going out to the battlefield, putting on his armor, getting ready to, to go to battle. In verse 3, David calls on God to enter into the fight. He says, draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. He's going to show us later that these are too strong for him. In fact, verse 10, if you look at the middle of verse 10, he says, who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong for him? And the point is, God, you do. You are the one who delivers the afflicted, me, David, who, who, against those who are too strong for him. So David, we could say David is a strong warrior, but he's not as strong as his enemies apparently here. And what he's saying is, God, who's stronger than you? And so David here is, in verses 1 through 8, a, a helpless victim being attacked by his enemies and needs God to stand up and fight for him because David can't do it on his own. In the second part of verse 3, David prays that God would come to his rescue and and make that rescue known to him. He says, Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Have you ever thought to pray like this? God, rise up and fight for me. Go out to battle against my enemies and then give me assurance by saying, I am your salvation. God, come and be my salvation and, and call it out to me so that I know that you are near and that you you're on my side. This is what David prays for. David prays for assurance despite the persecution that he's facing. In verse 4, he prays for the shame of his enemies. He says to bring them to shame. These people who are pursuing evil cause them to reap what they sow. Right? They are sowing evil and wickedness. They are sowing shame. So let them reap that shame. This is what he prays uh, later on in the chapter as well, that they would be humiliated. In verse 5, David prays that God would dispose them like chaff. Do you remember what the psalmist said about the wicked in Psalm 1-4? That they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Right? The, the farmer takes all the grain and, and in the grain is mixed the chaff. In order for him to get rid of the chaff, he throws it up on a windy day and the chaff just blows away with the wind. You see, the, the farmer doesn't gather all that chaff and kind of put it into a bucket and try to go sell it. There's no value in it, right? It's completely worthless. And, and David's saying, here, make the wicked like the chaff. Make them worthless to you, God. In other words, of no value to be discarded. And David expects that the agent of this deliverance is going to be the angel of the Lord. Look at the second part of verse 5. 
with the angel of the Lord driving them on. That's driving the wicked on. So make them like chaff. Make them worthless and cause the angel of the Lord to be that agent, the one who comes and actually accomplishes this, this victory on my behalf. Now we saw the angel of the Lord back in Psalm 34, verse 7, and I said that whenever you see in the Old Testament the five words, the angel of the Lord, it always, always, always refers to the pre-incarnate Christ. Okay, that is, God the Son existed eternally. He never had a beginning, just like God the Father and God the Spirit. God the Son existed eternally as part of the triune God, and yet when God created the world, He would often send Christ prior to His birth, prior to His conception, uh, pri- prior to the time which He came into the world, and He came and, and often would, would do battle or just be a messenger for God. And the best way that I can show you, or, or just point you, I should say, to, to the proof that every time you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's always Christ, is if you just jot these two passages down, Judges 6 and Judge, Judges 13. Judges 6 and 13, both of those chapters. Just read those chapters. The first one is the story of Gideon when the angel of the Lord comes to visit him. And what I want you to notice as you read through that passage is that every time you hear this person speaking to Gideon, the, the phrases the angel of the Lord and the Lord are used interchangeably. So that what we know there is that it's the same person. That it's, it's a manifestation of God in, in the flesh prior to the birth of Christ. And then Judges 13 is when Samson's parent, parents meet the angel of the Lord and the same thing goes there. That after the angel of the Lord, remember, goes up with the, the fire of the offering, at the end... Um, Samson's father says, we have met with God. And he's not talking about, hey, we had an experience with an angel. No, he's saying we met with God himself in human flesh. And that's why I think that's a manifestation of God. So here, what David is doing in verse 5 is saying, would you send, would you send yourself, God? Would you come yourself, come in, in the flesh and kill my enemies? Drive them on like the chaff. Send them away. The angel of the Lord is, um, we know from Second Kings 19 that he's by himself killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And that was obviously later, after the time of David. But, but the point is that he is powerful to deliver and David is confident in that power. In verse 6, David prays that the lives of his enemies would be difficult. He says, let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them again, expecting God to come and help. Verse 10, oh, I'm sorry, verses 7 and 8, David prays that God would cause his enemies to fall into their own traps. So we're starting to get a little bit of a picture now of what the, the enemies are doing against David. They're setting traps for him. As we read, you know, they, they have this little phrase, aha, now we have seen it. They, they want to... to See David fail. And what David is saying is, as they're setting these traps, okay, we can think physical, but I think it probably um, would apply to spiritual as well, and that is that, that as these traps are being set, let them fall on fall in these traps themselves. In other words, they wanted something bad to happen out of this, but but who was it? Who was they wanted the, the bad thing to happen, right? They wanted it to happen to David. Well, let that bad thing to happen that they want happen to them. Let them fall into their own pit. Or as they're rolling a boulder, 
you know, the Proverbs talk about they roll the boulder and it, it falls back on them. And that's what David prays for here in verses 7 and 8. So in short, David is in serious troubles with his enemies. And so in desperation, he calls out to God, Be my fighter. Be my soldier. Fight for me. Take out vengeance on, on they who have sought to destroy me. That's David's prayer. So if that were the end of the psalm, we could still learn much about trusting in God because here David is in a time of persecution. And what does he do? He prays to God to deliver him. If that were all we had, just these first eight verses, we would learn a lot. But, but he, he's not finished. He concludes this section with a promise to praise, doesn't he, in verses 9 and 10. A promise to praise. He says, And my soul shall rejoice in the Lord. It shall exalt in His salvation. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you? Who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong for him and the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him? Now, keep in mind that the, de- the deliverance that David wants and expects has not come yet. And by the end of the psalm, it still will not have come. But David is confident that when he is delivered, that he will respond to that deliverance with abundant praise to God. And notice the reason for his praise. Verse 9, It shall, the second part, my soul shall exult in his salvation. Don't think uh, saving faith there. Think deliverance from these wicked people who are trying to trap him. Okay, so he's saying, the reason I'm praising you is because you will deliver me. And then verse 10, same idea. Middle of the verse says, Who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong? Who rescues them? Who's who by his strength is strong enough to deliver me from people stronger than me? God, you need to come along and show them that you're more powerful. And notice this question at the beginning of verse ten Who is like you, Lord? And the implied answer No one. Who who can who can actually match up? to God's capability, His strength. No person, no army, not even all of creation combined is a match for God when He comes in power. And so David says, God, come in power and save me. Rescue me. So, simple application from that, from this first section is that after God delivers, we praise Him. After God delivers, we praise Him. Before God delivers, we pray for deliverance and we promise to praise Him. So, where are you right now? Are you on the other side of deliverance? That is, you're on, you've already seen the deliverance happen, then what you should be doing is praising God, remembering His works. Remember what He did for you and praise God for that. Or are you on this side of, of deliverance? That is, you still need deliverance. Well, then you pray and you promise to praise when it comes. That's what David does here and he serves for us as a good example. Again, we could stop the psalm here and learn much, but the prayer by David does not stop, does it? I mean, really, he's just going to reiterate what he's done before. He's going to talk about his trouble, and then he's going to promise to praise. He's going to do that in all three sections. But, but David is much like us, isn't he? That when we're being persecuted, we pray about our situation, and then what happens after we finish our time of prayer, let's say, our time of asking? Does that thought go away of of all the persecution that we're facing? No, it still comes to mind. And so what happens? We go back to God throughout the day in prayer. And David just kind of continues on in his prayer as, as it comes to mind that God 
is the one that has to deliver. And here in this next section, David sheds a little bit more light on what the enemies are actually doing because right now we just know that they're setting traps, they're against him, they need to be defeated. That's about all we know. So number two, we need to plead with God in the midst of heavy persecution. We need to plead with God in the midst of heavy persecution. So first pray for God's defense and then plead to God in the midst of heavy persecution. Again, same same sort of structure. He's going to give nine lines of, of his trouble and then he's going to give a line of praise. And then the first nine lines make up verses 11 through 16 and he talks about here the sting of betrayal. The sting of betrayal. This is starts to shed more light here, as I said, on what's going on with David. He's actually being betrayed by people whom he loved and people whom he served. David is the target of a vicious attack that is driven by hatred. Do you see that in verse 11? Malicious or hate, hate, hateful witnesses rise up. Right? Malice. They are witnesses that rise up with malice and they ask me of things that I do not know. Their goal is not to speak truth into the situation. Their goal is not to see justice served for David. Their goal is to attack him and to destroy him. To make him look like a fool. And so we could think, well, yeah, we can think of some people who have been, who have viciously attacked us in the past, right? But if that's not bad enough, that it's just somebody that viciously attacked us, notice what kind of a person it is in verse 12. It's a person that apparently he knew and actually had served. Verse 12, they repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. Here David's talking about the betrayal that he has faced that he treats them, notice in the first line of verse 12, he treats them with goodness and they return his goodness with evil or wickedness. So up until this point, we might be thinking, God, deliver me from my enemies. This is what David's praying. God, deliver me from my enemies. And we might think, you know, kind of like our national enemies, like in the past, Nazi Germany or today, ISIS, you know, those kind of enemies. Lord, deliver them. They want to see me destroyed. But David says, no, 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 no. That's not the kind of enemy that I'm, that I'm struggling with right now, that I'm fighting with right now. The kind of enemy that is opposing me is one who has been a close friend. One who has turned against me for no legitimate reason. Notice verse 7. That's, this is why I say without reason. David was innocent. It says, for without cause... So it's not like they're paying back David for doing something bad to them. No, David in verse 11 or verse 12 is one who's giving them goodness. He's pouring out goodness to them, and they without cause are returning that goodness with setting traps, doing evil to him. This is betrayal. David says this is in the second part of verse 12 to the bereavement of my soul. This word to bereavement is a word that could be translated as childlessness. In other words, he's saying, I am so distraught over this situation that, it, that it, I have the same kind of grief. It's the same category of grief that a parent has over the loss of a child. It's the experience that Jesus 
would know later when he poured out his life for his disciples and did nothing but good for them. Always did what was best and right, only to be betrayed by one who would hand him over to the authorities for a little bit of money. This is the kind of betrayal that David is facing. Someone who was his friend, someone who is his close confidant, someone whom he cared about and loved and poured out goodness to is the one who stabbed him. We get a little bit of a picture of the betrayal in verses 13 to 16. Verses 13 to 16. First we see David's goodness in verses 13 and 14 and then um, the evil that's returned to him in verses 15 and 16. So David says in verse 13, When they were sick, I prayed for them. You see that? As for me, when they were sick, because this is probably before they betrayed him, my clothing was sackcloth. He's in a state of grieving because they are sick. He, he longs for their soul to be restored. I humbled my soul with fasting and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. He was, he was just so distraught over their sickness that he prayed for them. And, and then verse 14, he, he grieved for them. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. See how close of a relationship he had with them. Treated them like family. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. So he cared for them. He treated with them with love and notice how they return his actions in verses 15 and 16 and that is with wickedness. They took pleasure in his stumbling in verse 15. Notice what they did. They not only watched his struggles without offering help, but they also mocked him in the process and gathered other people to do the same. It says, but at my stumbling, verse 15, they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. Hey, come, come over here and see this spectacle. The smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They slandered me. They, they misrepresented me without stopping. And then verse 16, they spitefully mocked him out of a deep hatred. Like godless jesters at a feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. This gnashing of teeth often refers to anger or um, frustration, um, malice. And David's saying, listen, you know, not only did they, did they get me to stumble, they get me to fall. I'm, I'm down on the mat like a boxer. And instead of them just standing up there mocking and kind of pointing at me, they beat me while I'm down, while they're mocking me. So David's felt the deep pain of betrayal, hasn't he? And the persecution of malicious slander goes on and on. And what do we do when we, like David, face that same kind of betrayal? What do we do? Well, the answer is the same thing that David does here in verses 17 and 18. And that is that he prays to God for help, verse 17, and then he thanks God when when God delivers him. So he prays to God for help in verse 17. He says, Lord, how long will you look on? And then here's the prayer. Rescue my soul from their ravages, my only life from the lions. David knew the pain of being attacked by his enemies, but he was also at the same time confident in God, wasn't he? He wasn't like, you know, God, you haven't done anything up until this point, so I'm giving up on you. 
He does start out his verse 17 that way, doesn't he? He says, how long will you let this go on? You know, I am the boxer who's kind of been down and I'm, I'm getting beaten while I'm down. And God, you're standing over there. I know you're here. You're watching. You know what's going on. So how long before you come and rescue me? I know you're powerful to save. And so, here, God, I'm asking. And you know, that's the hard part for us as believers as well is the enduring patience that is required in the midst of persecution. David had the weight there, even though God, he knew, was there and God had the power to rescue him at any time. We, like David, have to wait on the Lord. And so David's prayer is a prayer of desperation, but also of trust, isn't it? His desperation is seen in, how long, O Lord, will you continue to allow them to do this? But his, his prayer of trust is the very next line, which is, Rescue my soul. Right? If he didn't trust God, he wouldn't ask. And yet he does. So he prays. This is what we do. When, when we are going through the long days and weeks and years of persecution by our enemies who maybe once were our friends who, were, who have betrayed us, then what do we do? We call out to God for help. Tell Him about our situation. Ask Him to deliver. And then, as He did in the first part of the text, He promises to thank God in verse 18. I will give you thanks in the great congregation. I will praise you among the mighty throng or the large congregation. God, when you deliver me, I'm going to be the one praising you and I'm not going to do it in my little closet only. I will do it there because you are a great God and you're worthy of my praise. But I'm going to do it out in the middle of a huge congregation so that all people know what a great God you are and that you delivered me. I will thank you in their presence. So, first we pray for God's defense. We plead with God in the midst of persecution. And then thirdly, we pray for vindication. Verses 19 through 28. Again, same, same sort of structure. First nine lines have to do with, with his expression, uh, the, the explanation of what's going on. And then he finishes with, with uh, a prayer or a promise to praise. So, first... His prayer for slanderous mouths to be shut. Prayer for slanderous mouths to be shut. Verses 19 to 26. He says, God, don't let them win. Don't let them wink maliciously. That is, that they kind of stir up strife. They, with hatred, kind of wink at one another at, at the demise of David. Don't let them do that. Don't let them take pleasure in my failures. Do you know why I'm, I'm praying this way, God? Because they have no desire for peace. Look at verse 20. They don't seek peace, but they devise deceitful words against those who are quiet or peaceful in the land. So against those who are peaceful, they're not seeking peace. They're stirring up trouble. They pretend to be seeking peace, but notice what they're doing in verse 20. They devise deceitful words. With their crafty tongues, they use their words to look like they're pursuing peace when, in fact, they're actually pursuing division. They're actually pursuing destruction. This is David's enemies. This is what David is facing. In verse 21, they ridicule David for his alleged sin. It says, They opened their mouth wide against me. They said, Aha! Aha! Our eyes have seen it. So, we have seen you fall, David. We have seen you fail miserably. 
Here's David's response because he already knows he's innocent. Remember again, verse 7, without cause they set this net for him. So he's, he's claiming innocence. Now, not every time is David innocent when his enemies are attacking him and mocking him, and neither are we. But in this particular case, apparently he is innocent and they have no right, no reason, no cause to take out their, to take out their, their wickedness on him. And so what does David do? Verse 22, he prays for God's presence. He said, God, they say, you have seen it. That is, they say, our eyes have seen it, but, but you, God, have seen it. You, you have seen my righteousness. In fact, in, in verse 24, he's going to say, judge me according to your righteousness. Right? Give me the highest standard that you have and judge me according to that because I know that I'm right. I haven't done anything in this case, to offend you. So he prays for God to, to be near him. Notice at the second part of verse 22, O Lord, do not be far from me. Don't wander away from me, God. Stay close to me. I need you as much as ever. And then in verses 23 and 24, he prays for help because he knows that he's innocent. He prays for justice. He prays for righteousness to be done. At the end of verse 24, don't let them take joy in this, just like he prayed earlier. I think it was in verse 4. Don't let them, don't let them have joy in this situation. And then in verse 26, he prays that they would receive the shame that they deserve. This is actually what we saw in verse 4. That these people who are seeking to humiliate and shame David. David saying, would you shame them, God? Would you humiliate them? So David expresses his trouble, prays to God for deliverance, for protection. And then, as he does in each of the other two sections, he promises to praise God. So let's start with verse 28 to see this individual promise of praise. He says, My tongue shall declare your righteousness and your praise all day long. Here's the promise that you have for me, God. When I get on the other side of your deliverance, when I get up to the mountaintop and look back down on the valley from which you delivered me, I'm going to be the one praising you. And I'll do it all day long. But not only will God, will, will David praise God for his deliverance individually, but notice verse 27. He's going to call other people to do the same. He says, Let them shout for joy and rejoice who favor my vindication. So this sentence is a little bit awkward in the New American Standard, but he's basically saying, People who favor my vindication, people who are on my side and see that I was right and, that, and, and, and who are on your side, God, pe- those kind of people... Let them shout for joy and let them say this about you. The Lord be magnified who delights in the prosperity of a servant. So David wants not just himself to be the one praising God. He doesn't just want God to hear praise from his own lips, but he wants other people to join in with him. You know, in this large congregation of people who love God and want to see David's vindication, let them shout out for joy and say what a great God you are. So here's the prayer. In Psalm 35, God, come to my aid. My enemies are taking pleasure in seeing me stumble. They're hitting me while I'm down. But you are strong, God. There is none like you. And so would you humiliate them like they're trying to do to me? Give me reason to praise you 
and give your people reason to praise you as well. So how do we apply a psalm like this to our situation? Because probably you're thinking through this and thinking, you know, is God really calling on us to pray for judgment on our enemies? I mean, how does this square with what Jesus told us to do, which was to to love our enemies? And even Jesus, as he was dying, is praying for his enemies and asking for their forgiveness. How do we square a psalm like this with what Jesus did? Well, before we dig into those deeper questions, let me just take a step back and look back at the main point. I want us to make sure we understand what the main point is. And it is that when we are unjustly attacked by our enemies, that we should pray to God for protection and deliverance. Now, there are two assumptions here that we need to consider. First, that we will be persecuted. That we will be persecuted. And the second is that God is worthy of our cry for help. So first, we need to remember that we will be persecuted. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait a second. I, you know, I see all these per- kinds of persecution that happen in the Bible to the apostles, you know, the believers in the early church, you know, martyrs throughout history, even, you know, just as recently as the Reformation and, and even now in other parts of the world. And, and those kinds of physical persecutions are not happening to me. But what Jesus promised is that every believer... Paul said, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute, it, they will persecute you. In John 15, Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. And do you know what they're going to do to you? They're going to hate you without a cause. Isn't that what's happening to here, to David? He's being hated without a cause. He's being good to them. They're being evil to him. But recognize that Persecution does not necessarily come in the form of physical persecution. I say necessarily because many times it does. But there could be a person and there will be people and there are people who will go their entire Christian lives without suffering any physical persecution. We live in a country and during a time of relative peace in terms of human history, right? in terms of all the martyrs that have taken place since the time of Stephen, and in terms of where we are in the world. That we have relative peace. But, but persecution can come in other ways than just physical beatings or torture. John 5.16, Jesus says, For this reason the Jews... I'm sorry, this is John speaking. He says, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Why were they persecuting Him, John? He says, Because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. Well, what were the Jews doing there? Were they beating him? Well, if you look in the context, what they're doing is they're, they're mocking him. They're not beating him. They're saying, you can't heal on the Sabbath, you fool. That's persecution. See, that's a form of persecution. In Hebrews 12, the writer says, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. So there is a way in which we can be persecuted without being physically beaten or receive any kind of physical pain. So most likely, I would expect that in this room that you're not experiencing physical persecution or threats of physical danger because of your faith in Christ. However, recognize that if you are a follower of God, you will be hated for the sake of Christ's name. Your family may despise you, not want to talk with you. Your co-workers may mock you. I don't know what it is specifically for you, but 
But what I do know is that if they persecuted Christ, they will persecute you. So expect it. And because this persecution comes, we should not lose heart. Listen to 1 Peter 3:16 and 17. Peter says, Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better if God should will it that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. You see, some people are actually persecuted for doing what's wrong. Right? And, and so Peter's saying, don't, don't be just an annoying person that, that is constantly the, the butt of people's jokes and, and who is constantly being persecuted by other people. Don't be doing it because you're just a fool. Do it because you're doing something right, that you're actually uh, following Christ, that you're standing up for Christ so that when you are slandered, God will see it and Christ will be honored. Don't lose heart. Don't be weary in well-doing. For if you, um, if you persevere, you, you, know, you, you will you'll receive a crown. Next, turn to God for help. This is where we kind of come back to the, the text here, which is when David was persecuted, he cried out to God for help. So whatever kind of persecution you face, follow David's example and turn to God in prayer for protection and deliverance. And the Holy Spirit teaches us here in Psalm 35 that we should do it for the sake of God's glory. Go back into the text in verse 9, Psalm 35. Notice that David's not primarily concerned about his own reputation or his own comfort primarily. He's primarily concerned about God's glory. Verse 9, And my soul shall rejoice in the Lord. It shall exalt in His salvation. And my bones will say, Lord, who is like you? Then verse 18, I will give you thanks in the great congregation. So why is it that I want you to be want you to deliver me, God? So that I can give you thanks in the context of the congregation so they can see your greatness. And then verses 27 and 28. Let them all say who want to see me vindicated at the end of the verse, the Lord be magnified. See, David is concerned primarily with God being praised here, with God being magnified. So when you are persecuted, turn to God for help. Now, that principle may seem just extremely basic. Like, why do we even need to be told that? And I think we need to be told that because the Scriptures repeat it over and over again, remind us of our need to turn to God because we so often don't. We are quick to forget God. We are quick to, to turn to our own devices to get out of the trouble rather than to, to rely on God to see us through it. Finally, recognize that praying for judgment on your enemies is not necessarily self-serving. Praying for judgment on your enemies is not necessarily self-serving. Remember, Jesus said, love your enemies. And I think sometimes we look at a command like that and think, well, I can't pray for judgment on my enemies ever. I just need to pray for their salvation. But David's prayer for vindication, I would suggest to you, is not selfish. We just saw those verses where he's not primarily concerned about his own glory. He's concerned about God's glory. And so what David is concerned about is what David was concerned about when he fought Goliath. Not about his own name, but about God's reputation being, being defamed. And he says, if you will defy my God, then you will die today. and the, You will be food for the birds. That's exactly what happened. 
See, if David were concerned first and foremost about himself and his personal comfort when he prayed for the judgment of his enemies, then what would he do? He would take out vengeance himself or he would get somebody else to do it. He would get somebody else, you know, use his own devices to to take out vengeance for himself. But here's where it comes to trusting in God. We cannot take out vengeance ourselves on our enemies. We leave it to God, right? We leave God because vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? Or another scripture says that we need to leave room for God's wrath. And that means that we need to pray that God will deliver us from our persecution. And do you realize that when you pray for God to deliver you from your persecution and for for God to receive the glory when you are delivered, that something bad, something in terms of judgment has to happen to the wicked person, right? I mean... Are we just going to be, be being attacked by our enemies and then all of a sudden we're like, hey, we're, we're friends now? What happens if the wicked doesn't want to repent? When we pray for deliverance from that situation, they're going to keep coming and the only way that we're going to be freed from that situation is what? For God to come in His armor like a warrior and destroy our enemies. Do you realize this is in keeping with what we pray when we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, let that happen. The only way that that can happen is first if Jesus comes in judgment. Jesus will not bring peace to this earth. There will be not peace and goodwill among men on this earth or in Israel until Jesus first comes with a sword. And so when we pray for that, when we pray for the end times to come, we're praying for God to come and pour out His wrath on our enemies. There's nothing unbiblical about that. Because ultimately what we want to see is for God's name to be vindicated. For God to receive the glory so that all the people in the heavens and the earth below will be able to look at God after destroying his enemies and say, what a great and powerful and holy God who is worthy of all of our praise. Our job is to endure the persecution, turn to God for help, and then promise to praise him when the deliverance comes. Any questions or comments? Psalm 35, a little bit more of a difficult topic to consider but but necessary because again a lot of these psalms are laments why is that because we don't live in a pollyannic world where we just kind of or you know like the 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 ostrich who puts his head in the sand just kind of pretends like oh yeah there's all sorts of explosions and all things going on out there but you know everything's good down here we don't live in that kind of world do we we live in a realistic world when we put on our our, our biblical worldview glasses, when we see things from God's perspective, we see that you know, life is not always puppy dogs and roses and chocolate chip cookies. Peanut butter, chocolate chip cookies. Sometimes they're burnt and useless. And, and so we need to know what to do in those kinds of situations. We, we don't give up on God. We turn to God for help. I promise to praise him when he delivers. All right. Any-